we are so excited to announce our 2021 Doxology and Theology Conference. For details about the conference, head over to our website, the newly designed biblicalworship.com. Welcome to the Doxology and Theology Podcast, presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right, I said the Doxology and Theology Podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip by Mike Cosper. Mike is the founding pastor of Sojourn Church here in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. He spent many years overseeing its worship services and the Sojourn Music Ministry. Currently, Mike serves as director of podcasting for Christianity Today Ministries. Mike Cosper has spoken at several of our DT conferences, including the session that we're going to hear today. In this clip taken from our 2016 conference, Mike Cosper talks about context and how our worship services should reflect the time and place that the Lord has given us. This section, the first thing we're going to deal with, though, is context, contextualization. Um, Contextualization is one of those words, I talked about this a little bit last night, but it's one of those words that can be kind of a hot button a lot of people get irritated at the idea of contextualization because they feel like it automatically means, uh, to some degree or another, it means compromise. But when I use the word contextualization, what I'm talking about is how do we create services, how do we structure our services in such a way that they best serve our people and uh, most clearly communicate the things that we mean to communicate to our church? Um, so there'll be three context questions. The first one is simply, who is here? And, and I think this is the most important one. Um, I think that in, uh, uh, let me give you one example. There was a, a, a church that I, I had some time to work with a, a few years back. And this church was made up of primarily young uh, 20-something guys, men, men and women, but the worship ministry was primarily 20-something guys. They'd all grown up in the suburbs. Um, they'd all essentially gone to sort of a uh, a good school together. They'd been part of a college ministry together. And then they moved into uh, in the inner city of a, of a large major city to try and plant a church. And they, they started in like the hip neighborhood, but then when it was time to buy a building, and I'm not talking about Sojourn, though this sounds a lot like Sojourn, um, <laughs> but when it's time to buy the building, they moved into a neighborhood that was much more, uh, much closer to poverty, uh, much closer to a large African-American population. So they'd been there for about a year and they wondered you know, how come there aren't any African-Americans here? Like, how have we not been able to, to, to multiply and diversify? And uh, attending their service on Sunday, they, 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 to the best of their efforts, attempted to play gospel music. Again, white guys in their 20s who grew up in the suburbs, uh, who grew up, really grew up, essentially even as musicians, the music they knew was contemporary worship. They didn't know really anything beyond that. Um, and it was going very badly, <laughs> as you could imagine. And so what was interesting about the, the, the congregation is um, you've, got to res- you've got to have a respect for who you are as a church. You've got to have a respect for who you are and who your leaders are and as, as uh, who your members are. And as leaders, 
your first priority is to serve them well. And one of the things that we're tempted to do is we're tempted to sort of look beyond ourselves and go, this is the church that we should be. This is the church that I want to be. These are the people that I wish were here. And, and so we try to sort of gear our ministries around those things. And, and there's elements of that, that that are necessary. But in the process, what was happening at this church in particular was that the, the congregation who had already gathered, had already covenanted together, was being frustrated and alienated along the way. Um, another example was a church planter I, I met with a few years back who was, who was planting a, not a suburban church, a rural church in rural Alabama, you know, a good 45 minutes away from any major city. And his favorite music was the stuff coming out of Mars Hill. And he was trying to get the bands at his, you know, the bands at his church uh, to make music and to kind of create a worship culture and, a, and an aesthetic around this church that looked like this church from Seattle. It didn't make, it didn't make any sense. And as you might guess, it wasn't going well. So, so I think, you know, one of, my, one of the phrases I've, I've drawn around this is this idea that if you can't be with the church you love, love the church you're with. Um, sometimes when you're church planting or when you're pastoring, you get this vision for the people that you want to reach. And, and then once you're in ministry, you find yourself serving a, a completely different crowd. Um, I believe our first priority as, as leaders is to serve the church where God has put you to know those people, to love those people. And when we think about contextualization, how do we give voice in a language that they comprehend and appreciate and understand to our worship? Um, another way to put this is, is that our leaders, church leaders' preferences, culturally, aesthetically, et cetera, need to be restrained by the desires and the preferences of their people. We need to serve them well. But that's only one aspect there's a second aspect that's worth, with, that's worth bringing in. And the second thing is, who needs to be here? So, so that second element, that second priority is still a priority. We need to look around ourselves and go, for us as a congregation, for where we are, for where we're planted, for, for who we are, are best suited to reach, how do we create a worshiping culture that when they come in, there's going to be something that feels familiar? Not familiar in the sense of making it easier to hear, necessarily, but again, like I, you know, that Tim Keller quote, so that the offense of the gospel is clear to them. Um, we need language that gives expression to that. And we need, you know, language, when I say language, language is a shorthand for all the ways that we communicate um, the things that would go into uh, a worship service. Uh, sort of a dream idea question that I think is helpful for this is, imagine that one night uh, you, you go to sleep and when you wake up in the morning, Jesus has appeared in a dream to everybody in, in the community that you're trying to serve, and they've all gotten saved. And you walk into, like, the center of town or your favorite coffee shop or whatever it might be, and there's all these new Christians, and they're doing the best they can. To, to, they, they're suddenly, they're like, we're going to write some songs. We're going to praise Jesus. We, don't, we can't contain this anymore. What would that look like? What would that sound like? What would that expression look like? That's a way to think about who needs to be here and, and to sort of dream and imagine what would it look like for this community who doesn't know Jesus to suddenly find themselves worshiping him. Third question, who has been here before us? This is another one that when we're, when we're young and in ministry, and, and even when we're older in, in ministry, this can be a frustrating question on, on certain levels. Um, the first thing is we need to learn to honor the history of our congregations, especially if we have, if we have older folks. A lot of times... Um, when, when we're young and we're excited and we have a, a, a passion for a certain way of doing things, a passion for a certain sound and all of this, we end up, 
you know, inadvertently creating conflict in a congregation because we show up and we don't honor the past. And we don't, you know, we don't respect what, what that congregation that we've been called to serve has already been and has already done. You will alienate people and create a tremendous amount of conflict if you find yourself in that, in that position. And that's true in a church that's five years old as much as it's true in a church that's 50 years old. You know, every church, uh, a month in, every church has a tradition. They have something that they've done before, and the people who are gathered there have attached their affections and have attached a sense of ownership to, to what's been done there in the past. So we got to have respect for that, um, even in the times when we're trying to sort of lead change and, and, and do things differently. Um, you may be wanting to bring more theological depth into a context that's, that's primarily singing you know, modern praise songs or even, you know, gospel hymns from the early 20th century that are kind of sentimental and all of this. Um, If you don't lead that transition slowly and if you don't occasionally dip your toes back into that place in the past, I think you're doing a disservice to the congregation that's there. So don't just sing songs that were written in the last decade. Don't just sing retuned hymns. Sing some old hymns as well. Do things as well. The other reason you want to do this is you want to connect the church to the history of, connect your church to the history of the church, whether that's by reciting a creed or singing older hymns. You want to give the sense, in the, in the context of your worship service, you want to give a clear sense that we didn't make this up and this thing didn't start with us, that there's a church, that, you know, a church tradition that stretches way back that we're participating in. And, and I think this is one of the questions, this is one of the issues that's going to get more and more and more important because of what's going on in the broader context of our culture. Um, something I've been thinking a lot about, and, and this isn't a complete thought, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there, is we're living in this time where the, the pressures of secularism and the pressures of kind of the sexual revolution and progressivism, these things are pressing more and more and more against the church. And simultaneously, as that's happening, you know, that's really a, a movement that's been going on for a long time, but but let's start looking at it from the 60s. Simultaneously, while that movement's getting more and more momentum, um, you know, the sexual revolution's getting more momentum, abortion becomes legal, uh, uh, sort of no-fault divorce, all of this, all of these things that are sort of breaking down families and breaking down sexual identity and all of this. At the same time, the church is modernizing, right? We're, we're, there's a contemporary worship movement, and then in the 80s, there was this thing there's a book by a guy named Bill Bishop that, that talks about this, this sort of demographic thing that happened all over the country where culture kind of split up so that you never had to be around people who didn't look like you. This is part, partly due to suburbia, partly due to technology. And one of the significant factors in this was what happened to churches in the 80s and 90s, the, the sort of mega church movement, where when you went to church, you were, you know, the, the idea around worship was built around this thing that when you come to church, you're going to see people who are just like you, and we're going to sound like you, and we're going to worship like, you know, the music that you like and all of this. And there's plenty that we could point to in all of that that's like, well, those were good things. You know, those were good contributions to ministry. Here's my fear, though. As, as the church has modernized and become more and more of a modern aesthetic expression, you go to church and it's, it's, it's modern technology right and left, and it's modern songs, and it's, you know, it's a, there, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing happening on the platform that connects us to a sense of history. Meanwhile, the secular pressure is coming in, and our appeal, our only appeal in terms of preserving our place in culture, I believe, in the next hundred years is, hey, we didn't make this up, right? This isn't, this isn't us just being angry bigots. We're part of a tradition 
that is held to these beliefs about marriage and sexuality and sexual identity and the meaning of the body and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that goes back for, for years and years and years. The problem is if they walk in the doors of a lot of our churches and we try to say, well, this is a tradition that we're a part of, they go, show me the tradition. Everything you're communicating is this is modern, this is now, this is us, right? This is, this, this is about this moment. And so I think it's going to be really key for Christians to find their connections, not just in their, their heads, but in their cultural expressions that connect them more and more deeply to history because it's a key thing for our public witness in the days ahead. I also think one of the things you're seeing right now in culture is you see a movement away from the, these kind of modern evangelical things amongst millennials. Um, and there's, there's some interesting stuff that David Kinnaman uh, and, and Gabe Lyons have written about this. But there's this movement towards history and I think it's sort of unconsciously for these very reasons. So beyond the normal reasons in terms of saying, why should, we, why should we connect to the past? I think one of the reasons we need to connect to the past is it's a key way to preserving our place in the future. So those are the context questions. And between the three of them, who's here, who needs to be here, and who's been here before us, there's an inherent tension between all of them. They're all going to have kind of competing uh, competing priorities. And the job of the pastor is to be thoughtful and discerning and in, in working through the job of the worship leaders and the pastors um, and, and the ministry leaders is to be discerning about how do we navigate those tensions and give expression to each of these three desires in the life of the church. that's a hard place to stop. But if you'd like to hear the rest of this message from Mike Cosper entitled 10 Questions to Ask While You Are Planning Worship, then go to our website, biblicalworship.com and click podcast. Click around to find the show notes for season one, episode two, and we are happy to share with you the entire thing. That is what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by Evan Jarms, engineered by Mark Norris and Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friends at Murphy DX. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good it has to be sung. Peace be with you.